As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Welcome to the show that's brought to you by The Athletic with The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan from The Square Ball. It's Michael Normanson. Hello. And from The Athletic, this is Phil Hay. Hello. You can get signed up to The Athletic now if you are not already. If you go through this show, 33% off the full price of a subscription. You get analysis, in-depth features. Phil Hay, I mean, that's the biggest selling point for me, Phil. And ad-free versions of these podcasts via The Athletic app. Give me one great thing that's going to be on there this week, Phil, or several if you like. Well, I mentioned last week, never mind Phil Hay, but um, Andy Mitten had done a piece with Diego Uh... Flores. Manchester United's uh, Andy Mitten, but he's been friends with Flores for a long time. They met back in 2014, randomly in Dublin and kept in touch after that. And the piece ran Wednesday this week. And if you haven't had a read of it, give it a read. It's a great article and gives you a really, really good insight into what you have to do, firstly, to get anywhere near Bielsa's inner circle. Secondly, to cope and survive in Bielsa's inner circle. But even before that, what you have to do sometimes um, to get yourself into coaching full stop. And you'll find out that Flores leaving Argentina for Dublin and then Southampton was quite a journey with very little promise at the end of it. It was like a movie. We'll get into a bit of that actually in part two of the show today. If you want to sign up for The Athletic though and read that, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. That's theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. So we're recording Thursday lunchtime, uh, probably still in Birmingham, a mere 12, 13 hours ago, Phil. So how did we all sleep? Because we were in here recording last night straight after the game as well, Michael, weren't we? Um, And I don't know about you, I... I always struggle to get to sleep after midweek games, particularly when they're as thrilling as that one. And then I wake up in the morning still kind of with the residual adrenaline like, coursing through my veins. I said as we were leaving, I, I always get like a weird headache after games like that. And my face is, feels like it's throbbing in a quite unhealthy way. But you always think, you feel like, am I all right? I'd go see a doctor about that. <laughs> but it, I, it, it did calm down. And I, I went home and um, for our other show, went and listened to loads of Villa fans, which was, which was kind of interesting. How was Villa Park, Phil? It was box office football, I thought. Not vintage in the sense that there was a lot to pick holes in if you wanted to be hypercritical but both Bielsa and Gerrard said afterwards you know great game very very watchable and I think those are the sort of games that you would enjoy immensely if you were a neutral I think with hindsight you find that you you did enjoy it a lot too and the same as Michael really towards the end of games like that by the time you wrap up on Twitter and send your final couple of tweets at the end of the game you do feel like you're having a hot flush and like you've been kind of (laughs) gripping your seat for the last 10 minutes but I think more games like that, irrespective of the fact that Leeds didn't win the game, more games like that would have made this season a, a different spectacle. And 
we had it down at West Ham, I thought, in the league game. You know, Leeds looking like Leeds usually do under Bielsa. And it was the same last night. It was it was inventive, it was imaginative, it was porous at the back, so there were goals for Villa as well as Leeds. And it was end-to-end and extremely hard to call right the way through. I, I thought Leeds were extremely well-placed once James scored and I thought like they looked like they were completely in control. And then, as has happened a few times this season and, and is one of the problems for them, completely lost control in the blink of an eye and it looked like the game had gone before half-time. I think, looking back now, the, the timing of Dan James' second goal right before half-time was absolutely critical in making it a game that Leeds still felt that they could get something from. I think going into the second half, 3-1 down, would have been very, very different complexion. And in the end, I honestly thought that Leeds would be pleased to come away with a point because of how they were after Ramsey's second goal, but actually quite disappointed that they hadn't won that because I think they were in a position to win it. We were saying that last night, weren't we? I mean, my half-time analysis to you, Phil, was was just two words that I WhatsApped you, one of which was a swear word, uh, which we won't repeat on here because obviously it's a family show, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we felt at half-time that there was something there for us in that game. Even at 3-2 down, you thought, we're going to get something out of this. It was incredibly open, wasn't it? That was the thing. You you get a feeling for games, don't you, sometimes? I, to go back to the bad old days, but the like, being 4-1 up against Preston, everyone going, hmm, it's not over this. <laughs> and it was a bit, that, that game was a, not quite as crazy, but a bit one of those where you think there's there's definitely more to go in this. And equally, it, it wouldn't have entirely been surprising if Villa had gone out to win it 6-3 or something either. Mm. But as it was, we were, we were on top for all but probably 20 minutes of that game, weren't we? Well, I, I talked myself into Villa getting tired later on in the second half and us um, sort of coming into the ascendancy uh, while we're still pushing for, a, for another goal. But I had a feeling it was going to be something daft like 5-3 in the end that, well, one team or another. I do think like John Parkin with tenants across his chest is like the <laughs> emblem of the of the Worcester Times um, for Leeds. And you're right. I mean, I, I thought that at halftime as well, really hard to call this and difficult to know where it's going to go. It was like that from the first minute. I mean, the chance for Mings in the box and the periods in the first half where every time Villa swung a corner in, it seemed to be free header for Mings and Mings not quite able, able to score. But saying that it, at 3-2, you couldn't quite see what was going to happen or where it was going to go, but you thought it could end any scoreline. I think equally with Villa, at 1-0 down, and particularly at the point where Dan James hit the crossbar, close to making it 2-0, I don't think Villa would have envisaged being 3-1 up within about 15 minutes. It just did kind of kind of flip in, in an instant. And the tone of the, the piece that I did afterwards, it, it looked a lot at Dan James up front, which is something we should speak about again, and, and it's something that we seem to speak about a lot and it always feeds into the, the Gelhart discussion and Tyler Roberts and, and everything else. But as I was sitting watching Coutinho score and then Ramsey on one side of the pitch, Ramsey on the other side of the pitch, 1-0 turn into 3-1, I did think to myself, for, for all the focus on centre-forward and a, the attacking line and the goals that Leeds are scoring, nobody is really talking so much about the goals that they're conceding and that is as much of an issue when it comes to staying up as, as what's going on up front. You know, they they can be very brittle and it can go from a, a situation that looks like it's totally under control to a situation that looks like it's completely out of control Derby in, in the blink of an eye. 19, Absolutely. Yeah. It makes for a great game. And, you it know, doesn't, it and doesn't it, always. <laughs> well, no, that's that's very true. But again, if you were a neutral with no dog in the fight watching Leeds against Derby, you'd be sitting saying, you know, having stumbled across this on the telly, this is fantastic. Like, you know, this is this is well worth my time. I'm just going um, to clip that bit where Phil Hayes saying that the Derby result was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that'll follow me around... Um, Forever. And similar last night, I think if you know, if you're not bothered about the result, you'd have been glued to that in a way that, for example, I don't think Burnley Watford at the weekend was quite making people sit that sit down, you know, aliens who just land and saying, 
Premier League is something I've got to get into and got to get into rapidly. But like Gerard said afterwards yesterday, that's what you're in it for and, and that's that's what you're after. I just think that for a team who do still need wins on the board, um, and that's where Leeds are at the moment, that's another one that, that got away a little bit. Why did it flip then in that 15-minute space? Because we've got the attacking momentum graph here that you can find on SofaScore. Do it. It's really, really instructive about the shape of a game. And it has us having a massive spell in the middle of that um, that first half where it was all Leeds. And then suddenly we find ourselves 3-1 down. So why were we so porous? Do you think it's a midfield problem? Yes, to no small degree. Uh, there, there are a few factors. I think if Dan James scores that second goal and it doesn't come off the bar, then Villa are in a totally different place mentally and there's pressure on them from the crowd and they probably start to get a little bit tight. The first goal shifts the momentum and it has to be said that even though Leeds were playing well, they were giving chances away and it was one of those games where you kind of felt that it could go 1-1, 2-0, very, very quickly because just at either end, things were opening up and you leave Coutinho in space, that close to goal, he's going to score. And likewise, Ramsey, the, the problem for both of, the, um, both of Ramsey's goals was essentially Villa finding space in midfield and managing to beat players one-on-one or, or coming away from the midfield without a marker on them. And as we've seen before with Leeds going back a long time, right really to the start of, of Bielsa's time as head coach, that's when the structure starts to fall apart. And, you know, Rafinha could have tried, he had a very weird night last night. He was, he was really off colour on the ball, but at the same time, the rotation up front of the four of Rodrigo, James, Harrison and Rafinha was an absolute nightmare for Villa. Like they reminded me of West Ham in the league game down in London um, last month in that they would have loved, I think, to have had a centre-forward who was just in front of the two centre-backs and was just there and, and able for, for them to monitor. But with James, you had him going left for that um, that ball into the box that, that Dini headed behind. You had him going right for the ball that came off Emmy Martinez. You had the goal, obviously, and then you had him coming central for the shot off the bar. He was just all over the place and Harrison was was very aggressive as well. And, and even though Rafinha, nothing came off for him at all on the ball. Off the ball when Leeds were in possession, I, I think he made a difference because, again... You know, Villa were worried about him and, and where he was going. But for that second goal from Ramsey, breaking down the right-hand side, Rafinha isn't tracking him. On the previous goal, you know, Cleek is a couple of yards behind Ramsey, so can't get back um, to, to stop him scoring. And that tends to be how Leeds splinter. And it's not just a case of the back four not doing what they, they should do. Bielsa's defensive structure is always about defending from Bamford or whoever at number nine backwards. And it is absolutely critical in midfield that one-on-one you win those battles. Do you think it's because we play so aggressively going forward and we know that Leeds play with six forward players, don't they? So you've got six forward players up on the edge of their box or in their box. It breaks down and then you know you can do the maths and you can see that we've got four players behind that at very best, haven't we? And, and is, it, is, that, is it that our attacking is then costing us in a defensive sense as well? It's partly that, although to take um, Ramsey's first goal as an example... What you have is Ailing tracking Coutinho a long way to the halfway line. And and again, as I say, this is something that we've seen for ages and, and it's established part of Leeds' tactical approach. But he goes to halfway, he gets turned and suddenly there's a huge amount of space on his side of the field, which is where Ramsey runs in. And also Leeds are not in a position to, to recover quickly and to stop themselves getting opened up. By the same token, the second goal that followed that, uh, Ramsey's second goal, dispossessed, in Villa's half and it's the same thing it's a turnover transitional situation which is actually what Bielsa likes in reverse he likes to do that to other teams but it does mean that you're caught on the hop I don't think it's purely about the number of players that you commit forward although clearly that doesn't mean that Leeds ever have seven or eight sitting deep and waiting to soak up attacks 
but it does it can mean from time to time that you you leave big gaps open and players like Coutinho are usually good enough to exploit that you wonder what a Forshaw or Phillips in there might have done don't you yeah I think the, mid, the midfield is very much pieced together still isn't it at the moment and it's I think Cock has done alright in there and I thought Rodrigo was good in certain aspects last night but he, he doesn't he needs to have more freedom to just attack doesn't he I think which I, I don't think Click and a slightly out of position Robin Cock particularly gives him Click's coming on again I do think but looking at Rodrigo last night and looking at his passing in particular which was very good really good and was responsible for the, the, the goals both goals from James and was just really clever and what you'd want from a number 10 picking the gaps looking for runs seeing what's coming it made me wonder whether you could construct a midfield where you have Phillips in the defensive midfield role um, doing what he does you know, really solid last line of defence in front of the back four but then Forshaw in there as well who is you know, can play in an attacking mould but also is quite box to box and does a lot of defensive work and will drop deep and, and help to, to advance the play whether or not in a system like that you're more able to accommodate Rodrigo because Rodrigo's pressing and defensive work is not, I don't think, at the level that Bielsa would particularly expect of of a midfielder. But some of his attacking play and his, his chance creation looks so promising that you really do want him in the team, I feel. And I still look at the amount of money he costs, £27 million, and I think that you have to try and make a lot of somebody who is a Spain international and is clearly a very, very good footballer. But no, the the balance of the team wasn't entirely right. I wasn't surprised that Bielsa went with an unchanged lineup. I would personally have, have had Forshaw in there. But I thought Bielsa might do that. I thought he would double down really by going with James again up front. Likewise, by shaping to put on Roberts towards the end rather than Gilhart. <laughs> Although, you know, that kind of that, that kind of hit the wall just as Roberts was about to step up to the touchline. But you know what? For all, all the questions about why he's playing James, why he's doing this, why he's doing that, you looked at it last night and you could see the logic of the movement and the, the problems that that causes for defences. And I do wonder whether it's a system that will work particularly well or more, well, I was going to say more well, that's not, not good English or good grammar. <laughs> I think what you mean is more more better. More better. Yes. Um, whether it would work better away from home where teams are a bit more obliged to come out, commit men forward and leave leave gaps open. Maybe it's a bit of horses for courses. And I guess with Dan James in there, you get the work of two men, don't you? Um, if so, if Rodrigo can't quite put the miles in, you've got, uh, well, Harrison does a lot of work, doesn't he? So does Rafinha. You've got Dan James in front of him, so maybe they can compensate for the lack of, uh, of engine there. Yeah, the height of half a man and the, the <laughs> energy of two. I was looking at him between Konza and Mings and thinking if this was conventional football and you were just banging the ball long or swinging in crosses you know, for him hanging in the centre then um, Konza and, and Mings are, are going to have the easiest night ever. But that was the point, wasn't it? That was yeah. not the style and that, was not the, that wasn't the strategy. The strategy was to drag them all over the place and they did not like it. Which does overlook the fact that he did beat Mings to a header for a goal, <laughs> which was <laughs> bizarre to watch. Given an assist by Buendia as well, wasn't he? Because he kind of shoved hard enough into mm. that ball that he uh, managed to tuck it away. Yeah, and as I say, that was, that was absolutely crucial because I think at 3-1 down, you'd have been the same as me. You were kind of envisaging the massive meltdown that was coming at 90 minutes when um, it was a, a kind of another defeat on the record. But um, it's a decent point that, as I say, I, I'm a bit disappointed with hindsight that they weren't able to make more of the game because of where they were after sort of 20, 25 minutes. But having been 3-1 down and also with Norwich drawing at home to Palace having been ahead, I think that's a good point. I think so. And I think if you contrast how we use the ball to get James in last night versus how we did it earlier in the season, one of the frustrations I felt with it earlier in the season was that we were either just punting long balls towards his head which he's, n- he's not good at you know let's face it or we just weren't working it through midfield and it feels like we found a way to make that work better now even if it's not effective every week you know it's better 
Well, the attempts to make it stick against Newcastle didn't really work, although Leeds did play well in the first half against Newcastle. But it was a different game because Newcastle was sitting deep. So whereas again at, at West Ham, West Ham were trying to go punch for punch with Leeds and also I think are another team who would much prefer to have a centre forward that they can kind of control and, and manage in central areas rather than somebody like James who's all over the place and, and wing to wing and, and very difficult to track. Newcastle did sit in they didn't they didn't give him a lot of space they did get very tight to him and, and I don't think Leeds were particularly playing to his strengths in that game equally I don't think his strengths were really designed for the type of balls that were coming in from from either side it was a it was a Bamford afternoon but I guess it's it's a bit of indication for BLC he has stuck with this and he has defended it and I don't think you could ever accuse him of being pig-headed about it or of persisting with something that he doesn't actually genuinely believe is going to work you know I don't think he's sitting saying saying to himself this Dan James thing is not working but because everybody's criticising it I'm going to stick with it you know just to spite people I'm going to stick with it there is theory behind it and there will be a lot of thought going into it and you know I felt last night that you could could see why he was doing it Do you think we've seen a a better Dan James since he signed? Has he improved? Yeah I think he has I I can't remember but I think if you go back to the earliest podcast we, we did after he joined from Manchester United we said at the time I'm pretty sure I did, that I thought he would improve because I thought the coaching he would get at Leeds would be better than the coaching he'd, he'd been having at Manchester United. I didn't think he'd developed significantly at Old Trafford. I didn't, I didn't think he'd changed. I didn't think he'd seen the aspects of his game that needed to, to improve. I didn't think they'd been enhanced at all. But Bielsa has paid such close attention to him, has been so interested in him for so long that he clearly knows what he wants to do with him. And I don't think James has had a bad season. I don't. I, I don't think he's been... Outstanding, particularly last night was his best game by a mile, and and he was he was he was excellent. I thought right the way through, and I'm not surprised that he didn't want to come off when you know they were shaping to replace him because he was on a hat trick, but also he was still making a making a really big impact. But I think in in certain games he's looked good down the left. I think his pressing or certainly his attempts to press are, are decent and and consistent. Um, and I I still sort of think it it could be a, a very very good signing. I think the the problem in part is that because it was a the signing of a British player from Manchester United, so in the Premier League, there, there was a premium on the transfer fee, which makes you know a player who perhaps would have been in the 15, 20 million pound bracket if he was coming from abroad, suddenly in the 25 million pound bracket. And that strikes people as a far lot, far more money than, than what you would have paid otherwise. But good player, I think. I think we need to as well get used to the idea that if we're going to be a, an established Premier League team, you have players who are worth 10 to 30 million pounds on your bench. Like Every single team has it. We... I think we consider it to be almost cheating to do it because we just we're so used to the the championship days or, or as it has been this season where you know you have a bunch of children on the bench but actually having the, the depth and being able to have sometimes Jack Harrison on the bench or James himself on the bench to come on and change a game it is kind of part and parcel of yeah. being in the Premier League and that's one of the things that I found that I couldn't quite square the circle of you know when Bielsa was saying about well we know that Bielsa likes a small squad but he was also saying we play too much football and I thought well why don't you rotate your players a bit more that was one of the things that the conclusions I landed on. I mean, I'm, you know, I will reiterate it many times over. I know nothing compared to Marcelo Bielsa, but just the, the logical, you know, standpoint of that struck me. Um, but yeah, we we do need to get into a position where every option within that squad is a viable option, don't we? And some of them are going to cost decent money. Yeah, the odd thing about the bench this season is it's probably the value of it in certain games is probably lower than the value of the bench twenty years ago. You know, because it is full of academy players, so. On occasions, you will have players on the bench who are worth 20, 20, 25, 30 million if Rodrigo is there. 
But at the moment, they're not really in that position, Leeds. But it is some. It is a position you need to get to. And it means that you can look at somebody like James and say, yes, that's how much money he costs. But actually, in this particular game, the way to use him is to send him on after 70 minutes when the opposition are tired and use him to run them ragged for the last 20 minutes and, and potentially win the game or wrap up a game that's already looking good. We um, On Tuesday, we ran a piece um, looking at the kind of relegation candidates and sadly Leeds were kind of included in, in the list. So I, I got involved. And one of the things that jumped out was uh, one of our stats guys had looked at the intensity levels of the teams um, this season and Leeds were by you know some distance still the team playing the most intense football this season. You know, the, the intensity of the football has not dropped and despite results this season, it's still pretty much where where it was. And that, I think, is something that is massively in their favour in the back end of the season because it gives you the chance of winning games when you play like that. And I think you saw it against Villa last night. It was a, a massively physical game. You know, players covering huge distances. And it seemed to me that as much as both squads were pretty much out on their feet by the end, that Villa went first. You know, I, I thought Leeds had the legs on them. Um, and I did think towards the end, even before Conta's red card, you know, I did think that, that if there was a winning goal coming, it was going to come at Villa's end of the pitch. Just on that red card, I hadn't realised he'd uh, effectively elbowed Melier. I didn't see it properly at the time because I was, I was out getting a drink actually when the red card uh, occurred and I dashed back into the uh, into the room to, to watch it being dished out. So I hadn't actually seen the replays. I didn't see the arm being thrown. That was stupid, wasn't it? It was incredibly stupid, yeah. And he was always going to get booked for that. And he'd already been booked, so he, he was going to walk. And Gerard said afterwards, he didn't particularly have much of a dig at, at Konza, but he said that was the moment where I was thinking of sending on Danny Ings. You know, that was going to be my my play for the last five minutes because I did want to win the game. And obviously there was then no no chance of doing that and it would have been it would have been reckless. And in some ways, you know, that that was helpful because even though Leeds, I felt, had control of the game at that stage, Ings is very much the sort of player that you can visualise just being there in the 94th minute when something drops in Leeds' box and sticking it in the top corner. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep. You heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We touched on it at the start of the show then, Phil. Diego Flores, Andy Mitten, Boo Hiss. Manchester. Let's get that out of the way hey, first. Mind you, mind you, there's surely some sort of um, fanzine Fanzine camaraderie, no? He did He did come and congratulate us once, didn't he? At um, an awards thing, when we won. I think so, yeah, yeah. And uh, I think the, the Scousers had been a little bit unbearable, so there's kind of a, <laughs> we found a bit of common ground in terms of, like, I feel like I've heard these lot. Closer, a little bit closer to the East Coast. Yeah, and, and also he never hides the fact that he did print that edition of Champions in 1992, which he did promise to send me a copy of, actually. I've never seen it, but I would love to. Oh, yeah. How did that one go for them? Anyway, well. so now we've got the trashing of Mr Mitten out of the way. Let's talk about the thing that he wrote, which is about Diego Flores, because he knows Flores. 
Because when you tipped me off about this, I think we were speaking about it last week where we were we threw ahead to this article and I was like, that's fascinating. How does Andy Mitten know Diego Flores? But it, it started in Dublin, did this romance, did it? Andy Mitten knows everybody and, and anybody. He's a, he's a great journalist and he, he gets around and does all sorts and mostly Manchester United stuff, um, as he, he would say unashamedly. But he and Flores bumped into each other randomly in Dublin about eight or nine years ago. Flores had come over to Dublin because he was trying to learn English. He was trying to get into coaching. He wanted to coach in, in Europe. He'd done some badges and back in Argentina. But he was basically taking the punt of heading to a far-flung land and hoping that somehow he would he would find doors opening that would let him pursue a, a career in the game. And he went to Dublin, just to interject, sorry, he went to Dublin because it was cheaper than coming to London, basically, wasn't it? it was, he said, that, yeah. that's cheaper than going there. Yeah, and in Dublin, he... Which is still not that cheap. <laughs> no, it's, it's not. And, and he knew absolutely nobody, you know, literally nobody. Um, so I, I wrote about Bielsa's assistants about two years ago, and one of the stories in it was about Flores and how he became a player and then a, a youth coach for a, a local team in Dublin, Kingswood. And I spoke to a guy called Brian Coleman who, who, who knew him and, and had dealt with him and, and said that the way that, that he got to know, Brian was a, a coach at Kingswood as well, and he said the way he got to know Flores was that one day Brian was coaching kids in this park in Dublin and there was this guy who was doing some training on his own who then just came and sat down and started watching the training session. So they got talking afterwards and, and Flores sort of said, you know, I want to do a bit of coaching, I want to play football. Brian said, by all means, get involved. And it turned out that Flores, I think the story went, was staying in a flat owned by either Brian's mother or a uh, friend of Brian's whose mother owned it. And But one way or another, it turned out that there was a, a bit of a link there. And it was, at the time, he was a complete unknown. Nobody knew who he was. And he basically just had this ambition of ideally working for Bielsa if he could. You know, he was already intrigued by him. But of just finding a way into European coaching, which is incredibly difficult at the best of times. It's really difficult even if you've got UEFA Pro license, even if you, you've done all your badges and so on, you'll find plenty of players who want to be coaches who can't be at a high level because there just isn't enough work. And if every player that retires at the end of every season wants to become a coach, where are they all going to go? Especially in England, where a lot of people don't speak foreign languages in the way that, you know, on the continent, a lot of people speak English. So it became a journey of him appearing from Argentina and trying against massive, massive odds to get a foot in the door with somebody like Marcelo Bielsa. It's, it's like a movie is the story here. It's like a movie script, isn't it? Where he's, he's basically the unknown who's come over from South America, is living in a little box flat or whatever it is, and then he sets out on this journey to make it to become a Premier League coach, which he actually achieves. And like the, the link, one of the links to Bielsa came via Pochettino, didn't it, when he was at Southampton? And he just sat up one day, did, um, did Flores and decided, well, I want to go speak to Pochettino. So he just started going hanging around Southampton, didn't he? Which yeah, is, which is amazing. He, he went over there with so little money that he couldn't afford to book a hotel. So he had to sort of blag into a hostel. I say blag, you know, he just basically said, what can you can you do for me? And, and, and they helped him out. And he went to Southampton's training ground, you know, the, the guys on security naturally. And, you know, guys on security at Thorpe Arch are absolutely great. But if you turn up there unannouncing... I want to come in and watch training. They don't just go, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, just a minute while I open the gate. How many times have they sent you away, <laughs> Phil? Oh, many, many, many. <laughs> Usually just when we've been banned. But um, but yeah, you know, if I turned up there tomorrow saying, I want I want to come in, you'd have to have a very, even though they know who you are, you'd have to have a very good reason. You know, it's essentially how Hockaday got the job though, isn't it? Well, it may well have been, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Chances are I'm thinking this could this could be anybody's under Chilino. Yeah. Um, so he went to Southampton. <laughs> it just isn't what we do. We don't just let people in to watch training. 
But then he went back and um, Danny Osvaldo was driving in, I think, in a, a big massive Porsche, also from um, from South America. And um, Flores basically stopped the car and just took the gamble of they had, saying... They had a chat by the gate, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, just said, this is who I am. This is what I want to do. You know, I've come over from Dublin. I've got no money. I've got no badges. I've got, you know, I, I'm not pretending I'm anything I'm not. But I would like to come in and I would like to see a little bit of what Pochettino's doing. So Osvaldo, bless his cotton socks, went in and made the pitch to Pochettino of this guy from Argentina is outside and says he wants to come in and watch. And Pochettino in Southampton said yes. It didn't give him free run of the place. You know, it wasn't a case of, yeah, come and Keep watch Keep an eye on him. <laughs> yeah, come and, come and watch our sessions the day before we go to, to Manchester United, you know. But he was allowed to watch 23's games and, and everything else. And little by little, he was able to build up relationships with Pochettino's assistant. And then through that, and this was pretty crucial, he managed to develop a relationship with Diego Reyes, who had been with Bielsa from his days at Chile and is with him now um, at Leeds. And little by little got to know Reyes and became one of the many, many people who wanted to essentially prove himself to Bielsa. He wanted to do analysis for him. Um, he wanted to do that side of the work and to show Bielsa that he understood football, that he had a talent for it. Um, so he started doing intern work, as as many, many people have. And it reminded me of a story of um, a guy called um, Felipe Canetti, who was an analyst intern, whatever you want to call him, for Bielsa when Bielsa was coaching Chile. And Canetti grew up in Chile and loved Bielsa obsessed with him, really young guy, teenage guy, and wrote to him and said, I want to work for you. So Bielsa said, wrote back to him and said, okay, well, you analyse 150 games and write back to me with your findings and your thoughts and how you see it and, and what you took from it all and we'll go from there. So we did. And bear in mind that this was, it, well, it was after the massive earthquake in Chile for one thing. So the infrastructure was completely trash, but it was also pre-internet to a degree. You didn't have like fast access to Scout and all that. So this kid sat and watched 150 games and made notes on it all, sent a massive file to Bielsa. Bielsa read it and said, I like this. I like you. I like what you're doing. Come and work for Chile. So, <laughs> so, he, so he did. You know, he joined, um, joined, the, joined the staff there. And it, that, that makes it sound much easier than it is. You know, you've got to graft and you've got to do the hours and you've got to stick with it for ages. And sometimes it's unpaid and, and everything else. But basically... Flores, little by little, managed to get himself in the mix while Bielsa was was at Marseille and then eventually joined the, the crew of Quiroga and, and Reyes. Yeah, and it was the link back to Pochettino that kind of sealed it, wasn't it? Because one day one of them needed his, his number and Flores was able to go, well, actually, I've got his assistant's number from back in the Southampton day. But it's fascinating. What really fascinates me about the tale, and it's it's well worth reading on The Athletic if you haven't yet, because I was kind of sat there going, oh, wow. It's kind of it's the the devotional aspect of it all. It's almost like religious, isn't it? They're like pilgrims who just kind of set off on this journey with nothing in their pockets, just in a bid to get near these these almost godlike figures in in football. And also, I think if you know anything about Bielsa, and if you want to work for him, then you must know a huge amount about him. You know how hard you're going to be worked. You know you know that you're going to you're going to be worked to the bone, and that it's going to have to be total total commitment. I mean, there's a part in it where Flores talks about leaving Leeds and people remember that he left very shortly after promotion even though Leeds had gone into the Premier League he decided that you know it was it was time for him to go and he says in the piece that you know he, he wanted to become a coach himself but also says that you know he, he felt his words were I felt uncomfortable when there was no reason to feel like this and he was without any doubt tired I think and you know he'd, he'd been pushed really hard as I mean, we, we, all, we all were during that promotion yeah, I, th- yeah. I think so and, and I think to an extent just wanted a break but he, he basically says, because I didn't want to be disloyal to Bielsa, I wasn't prepared to accept another offer from anywhere else. 
So I basically just quit. You know, I basically said, in order to leave, I'm just going to give up my job so that I don't disrespect you or upset you or make it look like I'm bailing out to go somewhere else. I'm just going to, I'm just going to give this all up. And he did. And, and he went, he went home. Um, and that was that. And one of the really nice tales in the piece is that a, a few months ago at Thorpe Arts, they found his championship winner's medal. Uh, they found this little box up there. He left it behind accidentally when he, when he cleared out. But it was his and, you know, it, it is his and it hasn't been returned to him yet because it's been very difficult to, to get over to um, to South America because of, of COVID. But the plan is to, to return it to him over there. And it's um, it's nice to think they'll take that away with him. Sounds like he's really earned it because, I mean, it must be really hard work, I mean, judging by the contents of the article, to get into the inner circle. In it's, the a cult, it's a cult, isn't it, essentially? You, yeah, you, it kind is, of, yeah. you buy into it and then... The difficulty in leaving is also... Well, that's what I was going to say. Well, it's, well, it's part of it, well, isn't it's, it? It's three, three stages. It's impossible to get into. You're absolutely exhausted when you're in it, and then it's impossible to get out of. So you drink the Kool-Aid. I mean, at, at Marseille, they said that Reyes just seemed to be one of these guys who never, ever slept, just seemed to be on the go all the time, which is probably how you have to be um, to work like that. And Quiroga has been with Bielsa even longer. That goes back, I think I'm right in saying, to his time at, at Argentina, although perhaps slightly later, but he was certainly in in the mix before the, the other two were Flores and um, and Reyes. Uh, but, you know, Quiroga will go back home to, uh, to where he lives in, in Argentina in between jobs and he will help, you know, his local amateur side who he, he just assists for free as far as I can tell. But then at the drop of a hat, Bielsa will say, it's time to go, we're, um, we're off to Leo. And they do. Oh, we're off to Lazio. Okay, they didn't quite make it. But, you know, we're, we're off to Lazio. Fine, yeah. No, get, get ready for Rome. Again, one of the details that's in the article is when they do that, they almost um, they almost go into a bunker, don't they? In, I can't remember the name of the town off the top of my head, but um, in Argentina, uh, where they just plan the next job. They'll just sit there. Bielsa will sort of say, you know, send the bat signal out or whatever, and then they all assemble at like, a, it'll be like a country mansion or whatever, and then just... Uh, oh no, that's too ostentatious for Bielsa. It'll be just a, a country house, a ranch. Yes. I think it is. It, yeah, it is often bed. described yeah. as. <laughs> yeah, and and then they plan the next mission, almost like like Mission Impossible, isn't it, or something like that, where they they lay out all the plans of exactly what they're going to do, and that's the point at which the Leeds United story began, because originally um, Corbran went over, didn't he, with Orta on the first journey to meet them all, and that's when they got there and found out that they knew everything about the championship, and then the second one was where Kinnear went over with Otter and Radrazani and they, they sealed the deal. Well, um, Radrazani was there for the first trip as well, oh, I think. Okay. But um, the, the Otter speaks about that in the, the forward he did for, for my book where he says he walked into this hotel room and he was a bit worried because he hadn't heard from Bielsa overnight and he was wondering if he'd upset him or if something had gone wrong. Got to this hotel and they said, you know, where's, the, where's this meeting room that we're supposed to go into? And they walked in and it was just full of computer screens and flip charts and everything else and there was, Reyes was there and Flores and Quiroga and, and everybody else. And Orta said his first thought was just, help me. Like, I don't know what on earth is going to go on here. Um, but they do, yeah, no, that's how they, they prepare for, for every job. And it does sound like you basically have to be able to down tools at a moment's notice and then and commit years and years of, of your life to doing it. And I'd love to know what their family members, partners, wives make of it all. Because it's not, you know, it's... It's not a small deal. It's kind of all, it's all encompassing, isn't it? You you can't really down, I was going to say you can't down tools, can you? It's kind of like being in the military, isn't it? It's just you don't, yeah. you get sent where you're sent, don't you, sometimes? And I guess your family has to buy into it yeah. to an extent. You're like, well, it looks like I'm going to a place called Leeds. Don't know a thing about it. <laughs> yeah. Just going to Google it. On a human level, it must be really, really hard that. It, you can only assume that your passion for it is so intense that it's what you want to do and yeah. that it excites you rather than your first thought being... 
my wife's going to go absolutely bonkers phone <laughs> and tell her this. But who would you rather answer to? You know, your wife or Marcelo Bielsa? I think Marcelo Bielsa would be a really, really difficult person to piss off. <laughs> Is he scarier than your wife, would you say? Oh, by a mile. Yeah. It depends on circumstances, really, doesn't it? And exactly what it is that you've done. Um, but yeah, no, I think... Um, I, I think I could I, disappoint Marcelo Bielsa I, a lot easier than my wife. But I mean, which I disappoint her very regularly. Let yeah, me tell you. yeah, no, likewise. Um, but, the, but then that is basically what Flores is saying there, isn't it? When it came to leave, my way out was to say, I'm going to be unemployed. Like, you know, I'm just... I'm I'm not going to Saint Tropez or I'm not going to you know Real Madrid to take over a massive contract. I'm going to have no money and or no money. I'm going to have no income, and I'm just going to go back to Argentina and and do nothing. And it's not a secret actually that Bielsa was really sad to lose him, did not want to lose him, and didn't want him um, to go. But I, you know, big part of me thinks good on Flores for just following, you know, following his own mind, following his heart, and he's gone into coaching in in Argentina, and by all accounts, he's doing pretty well. Has anyone ever been able to actually put a number on? the amount of hours that Bielsa and his assistants work because you get the feeling they take the lead from Bielsa and given he works more or less all the time they kind of have to as well got a workaholic boss well I remember one of his assistants at Marseille not one of the inner circle as it is now saying that when he was at Marseille and he was there for like a year or so saying that they had about three days off I think in in that year three or four days <laughs> off something like that I, I, I don't think you know, I don't <laughs> think if you wanted to take your kids to Disneyland Paris you were necessarily given leave to disappear for, for a fortnight. And it was like that during the COVID lockdown. I mean, I don't think there would have been that many clubs who would have switched off completely because the season was obviously going to start up at, at some point. But it was absolutely full on. Um, there was no breather at all. And, and I guess, I mean, only Flores could say this, but I guess the, there might well have been part of him that, that felt that that season had been elongated. It had been really really pressurised, you know, especially towards the end. I mean, I, I remember seeing Flores with Bielsa on the touchline when Hernandez scored that goal down at Swansea and honestly just about touched the sky with how high he jumped and you could tell like that how much he'd been riding on it for all of them. And possibly, you know, you get to the end of that, you have the slightest breather and then suddenly bang, you're right into the Premier League season. And I suppose for everybody, eventually you you, you just need a bit of a breather, don't you? Especially um, if you've been given translation duties, because that looks difficult. Oh, bless him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he always had that look on his face of, you know, I really don't want to do this, but it's not my place to say no. And if I'm asked to do it, I will absolutely do it. I mean, I don't envy translating for, for Bielsa ever, but that was how Andy bumped into him again. He was over uh, in Australia with Manchester United. Um, for pre-season 2019, obviously Leeds were, were over there for the friendly against them. And afterwards, because Bielsa does no press outside of the season, you know, pre-game, post-match, that's it really, with very, very few exceptions. He wasn't doing any media in Australia, but Leeds still felt that they needed to put somebody up. So lo and behold, <laughs> Andy's sitting in this press conference and who walks out but Diego Flores to sit down and take, in, and take some questions. And Andy said he just sat there thinking to himself, I know who you are. You know, I, I know you. I remember remember where we, we first met. And it's um, it's amazing really to think that sort of gamble on flying to Dublin thinking, let's just see what happens has, has turned out like this. That's become one of my favourite little sort of subplots of Leeds United is the relationship between Bielsa and various translators and how the translation gets through and the effect that it has on the, the questions being asked and and how did, um, is it Andres who's the, the current translator? Yeah. Isn't isn't he a bit of a Bielsa devotee and did he write to him to get the job? Very much so. From what I know, I don't know a huge amount about Andres and, and he keeps himself to himself as as they all do. But very, very nice guy and, and I think actually has done a good job of translating for Bielsa because that is a tough, tough job. But 
Colombian descent originally. Um, someone said to me he's an Arsenal fan actually, but massively into his football, very, very big into Bielsa. And I think was doing essentially in term work for Bielsa beforehand in the way that people do. They chance their arm with him and it's worth chancing your arm because quite often it does lead to a job. You got the impression with Flores when he was translating that his English was probably of about the same level as Bielsa because he'd often he'd often answer and Bielsa would be at the side of him going, no, no, no. Like, you're, you're translating that wrong. It's like, well, just, just answer yourself. This, this is the thing you see. It's not even like there's any concession given to the translators for the fact that it's quite tricky this. And, you know, in Flores' case, translating from Spanish to English is probably not his first job or his first... His first talent, but you just have to have to kind of go with it. And I've said previously that Leeds have offered Bielsa proper, you know, I say proper translators, that's not fair, but professional pro- Professional, yeah, yeah. Um, trained translators. And he's he's never gone for it. You had originally Salim Lamrani, whose English was very formal, but was actually very clear and spoke, you know, was able to speak strongly and, and confidently. Strong biceps too. Very much so, yeah. I always thought he could he could have bench pressed any of us. An no absolute problem. beefcake. No problem. Yeah. And then you had Flores, who you know it very much felt like everybody Haunted. was everybody was in the in the video room saying, "Look, the time's come to draw straws for this. Let's, <laughs> let's do it." They said, "Sorry, Diego, that's just the just the way it goes." And then obviously Andres, who you know I think looked like he was living the dream um, last season because it it was so good. Someone tells me that translating for Bielsa is probably more fun when the going's good than than when it's not. But um, take the rough with the smooth, don't you? This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. It's to Goodison at the weekend, Phil, and three points for Leeds, yes? Why not? Oh, great. That's the end of yeah. the show then. <laughs> See you next week. Um, do we all feel a bit more confident off the back of that Villa result? The performance, maybe, not the result. And I think the Everton result as well. Does definitely help, yes. Did you, the... did you see them at Newcastle, Phil? Did you watch I that? I did. They weren't yes. good, were they? I said in my piece last night, that's the sort of game that you would like this season to get to the stage where you don't have to watch it or take any interest in it. They were not great. Big result for Newcastle. My gut feeling is that the bottom three is starting to shape up as the bottom three now, but they are in a lot of trouble, Everton. And, and I'm not being clever about that because Leeds are not out of the woods yet either. But Goodison seemed very happy with the FA Cup game under Lampard. But the FA Cup isn't really what they're looking at this season. And that there was no frank bounce in that game at all. I, I didn't think, which isn't to say that we might not see more of it on Saturday and they do have a do have a home crowd uh, this weekend as well. It seemed to me that you'd had two clubs who had had issues and priorities to sort out in the window, Newcastle and Everton, and it felt as if one of them had probably got closer to the mark than the other and it wasn't Everton. And Deli Alley, for example, as a signing for Everton, uh, we remarked, didn't we, on our show, how it feels like the plan at Everton for this season, the Benitez uh, blueprint has just gone out the window. They've ripped it up. 
Lampard's come in, committed him to a huge amount of wages on on two low knees, and yet you saw like Deli Alley at Newcastle. He seemed to make them worse. He looked laboured, I think is the kindest description. It's hard though, isn't it, to think of the last time, and I don't watch Tottenham religiously, but the last time that you read about Deli Alley playing especially well or being man of the match, outstanding player on the pitch, he he has gone through a dip and he definitely needs definitely needed a fresh start, I think, and, and something to get him going again. But it goes back a little bit to what we were chatting about last week about buyer's remorse with players who were once kind of considered to be gems in the making and you know, busted flush is probably a bit strong for somebody like Deli Ali, but has definitely gone off the boil. Is that a sensible investment? Um, I suppose to a degree you could you could point to Coutinho as well to say it's somebody who at the time when he was at Liverpool was as valuable as just about anybody else in, in the game, give or take. And not so now, you know, if he goes to Villa in the summer permanently, you'd be talking £30 million or, or just more. So I think Everton need a massive overhaul in, in a lot of areas, but obviously you can't do it mid-season. The additional problem is that to look at the reaction to Lampard's appointment as manager, it's not been scathing and it hasn't been particularly negative, I don't think. But I don't get the sense that many people over there, many Everton fans, are looking at Lampard coming in and saying, this is absolutely inspired or 100%, this is the way we should be going. It feels a little bit more like a manager of convenience, which isn't to say that it won't go well for him. But I don't know, do, do you see a project in Lampard and Everton? It doesn't feel like it to me. I mean, I suspect we're probably biased yeah. when it comes to there is, there is that, yeah. You're not going to mm-hmm. get a lot of love for Frank here, I, I don't think. I mean, I look at his jobs he's done so far and at Derby he went into a team that consistently got into and then failed to win the playoffs and he did just that with a huge wage budget and with, you have to say, some very high quality low knees in that team as well. You know, it's Mason Mount a year later is, is playing for Chelsea in England and looks looks brilliant and he, even with him in the team, couldn't get Derby out and then he went to Chelsea admittedly didn't have the money in the first season but had let's face it an incredible depth of squad there already well it wasn't like he was coming in and trying to you know piece together a, a, a team that had been ripped apart or anything they were they were a good side and have had billions invested in them in the past 20 years or so signed a load of players and it got worse I, I don't see that he has proved himself at all to be perfectly honest he's he basically taken Derby to where they always were took Chelsea to where they always were and then left Chelsea with them suffering. And as yeah, he's waited for a job, I think, that suits him as much as kind of just getting in the trenches again. There's a good Venn diagram I saw doing the rounds on Twitter, which was clubs Lampard thinks he's too good for, clubs too good for Lampard, and clubs too sensible to hire Lampard. And Everton and Newcastle were basically the only two that, that fell outside of, of one of those Bingo. circles. Yeah. There yeah. you go. It goes without saying that at some point he's going to have to prove himself in a big way, isn't he? Um, you, you can't really build a coaching career in the Premier League with massive scepticism round about it and people constantly saying, is he actually good enough um, Good enough for this? I mean, I mean, time will tell. He didn't do a bad job at Derby. I didn't think, I, did, I thought he did okay in periods at Chelsea, but it seemed pretty apparent to me that if Chelsea were going to do anything or go anywhere, they, they were going to have to change change at that level. Although I find it quite interesting that Tuchel, is, the squad he's got there now, is a long way behind Manchester City. And although they did win the European Cup last season, and you can't knock that at all, there is still quite a. Wow, yeah, that was uh, that was Frank's, wasn't it? Well, yeah, well, yeah. To, you, uh, you could you could one say two that. Pundits. You could say that, but I think if you if you look closely at Tuchel this season, he's felt the pressure a bit of that job without a doubt, and they they are not they're certainly not going to win the league or or go close close to it. So not necessarily a job that's kind of solved just by changing your coach. But the bigger issue I think for Everton is that the the form has set in for them um, in a big way, and I think there are games. 
for example, you know, Newcastle, which was such a crucial match for them. And again, like Newcastle at home for Leeds, a, a game that could have taken Everton quite a long way clear of the bottom three, but didn't. There wasn't a lot of fight in it. And there wasn't, and, and that is the one thing with Leeds. They have never, ever buckled up until this point this season. They've never, they've had bad defeats. City, particularly Arsenal, you know, Manchester United on the first day was not good, but they've never completely lost it. They've never completely lost it. There's never been mutiny. There's there's never been fallout, which has made you think, do you know what? This is now going to absolutely implode. And even at Villa last night, 3-1 down and, and in, you know, in in a really bad position in a week where they do need to take points, still digging that out and still getting a draw from it, I think says a, says an awful lot. Despite how bad Everton have been, I'd have been concerned going to Goodison had Leeds lost badly last night. Had they finished 3-1 after that spell before half-time, I'd have been concerned about them. But I always felt that if they were getting something from Villa, they'd have a very good chance of getting something from Everton as well. It's funny, we, we exchanged messages on that this week, didn't we? Where you said, like, if we lose at Villa, I'd be concerned about Goodison. And I said, do you know what? I wouldn't, because it'd be just like us to lose one game, but then turn up into the next. But... I mean, obviously, you always give yourself a better platform by putting in a good performance like we did last night because we all feel a lot more confident going to Goodison at the weekend off the back of uh, of what we saw. Just to close out the the thoughts on Lampard, it feels like we're, we're teeing ourselves up for explaining why Leeds should win this one. That's kind of the point we're hinting towards. Is, is that fair? Uh, yes. Um, I, I think it's a very, very winnable game and, and I felt that about Villa as well. I don't see an awful lot in Everton to be concerned about and I'm also not sure how Lampard is going to turn that performance um, midweek at Newcastle into something much more vibrant and and impressive against Leeds. Although they do have the players to do it, you know, it's not a, it's not basically a bad squad at all. But you you've often seen in the past, and actually you you saw it with with Leeds latterly, that the issue wasn't really that there were no good players there. There just wasn't a team, and there wasn't a, a system, and there wasn't a strategy, and there was no confidence. And nothing was nothing was kind of held together in in a in a concrete way. Whereas I think it leads you feel a bit more like whatever else is going on, there is the framework that everybody can fall back on and can believe in because it has worked before. And as I say, there are little things about Leeds that give me confidence that they will stay up. For what it's worth, I think Everton will stay up as well. But they they're not in a good position at all. They strike me as feeling a little bit like we did earlier in the season uh, when we, everybody was getting a little bit nervous about where this was heading and you couldn't necessarily see the form turning around. It strikes me that they're in a similar spot, albeit a lot later on in the season. Like We had all the games in front of us, so I think we always think, well, let's hope we turn it around. Let's hope we turn it around. And it looks like, you know, slowly but surely, we're just chalking the points up on the board now. Whereas Everton, it feels like they're in a bit of a slide, but running out of games as well. They've got a much better squad than Burnley, Watford and Norwich, yeah. I think is is what is likely to save them, just because you know, there are some good players in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Admittedly, they've got some quite bad injury problems at the moment, which should also help us um, on the weekend. We, we don't know about Gray and Mina yet, do we? It seems yeah. Mina's almost definitely going to miss it. Gray, they're not quite sure. It's, it's possible that both of those two will be out, which which won't help. Um, I mean, Mina's an awful presence on a football pitch. Well, but again, on, on Tuesday, <laughs> Lampard decided to go with the sort of three four two one formation, um, which was different to what he'd done against Brentford, and and it didn't work at all, and it wasn't as far as I can gather too much like what, what Benitez have been been trying to do and it's tough in February to try and suddenly create this new strategy and new formation with players who have not been playing well and have not been getting results and, and don't have particularly high confidence and then you lose you know a couple of injured players Gray was particularly good at Ellen Road and um, when Everton were here at, at the start of the season it looked really good and it does put the pressure on and I don't think Lampard can count on 
much of a honeymoon period or much of a period of grace if it starts getting messy. You know, he, he, you go into that job because target one is to stay up. You know, there is absolutely no way that you can take a club like Everton down and say, yeah, but, I, you know, I'm new to the job and this is going to be the start of a big rebuilding process. You know, that is just not, not going to wash. And I mean, there was a moment on Wednesday night when Norwich were winning and Leeds were losing where it was looking like the gap from Leeds to the bottom three was going to be four points and the gap from Everton to the bottom three was going to be one. And I mean, that is way, way too close for comfort. And that really does take you into the territory of that old thing of nobody is ever too good to to go down. Some interesting fixtures, actually, this weekend as we get towards the, I think it's called the business end of the season, isn't it? Mm-hmm. As we, as we get the towards the end. Yes. Um, you've got Norwich hosting Man City, which you'd expect to go in the way of Man City. That's after us. That's the tea time kickoff on Saturday. Uh, again, Watford, Brighton. You'd fancy Brighton in that one, but you never know, do you? Brentford Palace is an interesting one too. Could go either way. And Man United hosting Southampton. That closes out the Saturday games. So it is starting to get a little bit bunched up around the middle, isn't it? It's that same old story, isn't it, that we've faced over the last few weeks. If we can just win this next game, suddenly it makes the season look a lot more comfortable. If only Rujal Kipling was still alive, he could rewrite that poem. If. And it would work perfectly for Leeds. <laughs> yeah, if, if you just sort this out, we can all have a nice quiet end to the season. The interesting thing about the league at the moment is that when you pull up the BBC's website, they do the, you know, at the, the far right hand side of the table, they do your wins in green, your draws in, in black and, and your defeats in red. They do the last five games and there is a massive big red line, well, almost a complete red line through Everton, but there is also a complete red line through Brentford who are having a very, very difficult time of things suddenly and are only on 23 points and it doesn't feel that long ago that they were in a position that seemed safe enough, in a position where you thought they're not going to fail to get enough results to keep themselves clear but they look like they might be heading for choppy waters as well. Mm, and the Sunday fixtures, we've got Burnley-Liverpool, which obviously they expect to go Liverpool's way. Newcastle-Villa, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Spurs-Wolves and then Leicester against West Ham. Neither of those two final fixtures really concern us a great deal, unless we're looking upwards towards Europe, in which case, you know. Mm, not for sure. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's just get, should we get settled in mid-table before we yeah, start, why not? start pushing on? But yeah, what about that, um, the, the Newcastle-Villa one? Um, how do you think that'll go? Well, you couldn't say Newcastle are streaky in any way at all, but they it can be difficult for them to get themselves going. I feel, though, that they might just have done that, um, Leeds and Everton back-to-back, particularly because of where Leeds and Everton are in the table. When you start picking fixtures out of the list and saying those are ones you have to win, I mean, those are games that Newcastle had to win, and that's taken them up to, to 17th. And if I think about what was going wrong for Villa last night and why it, it didn't work for them, I can see ways in which Newcastle will hurt them. I can see ways in which somebody like um, Sam Maximan will hurt them. I could see a home win in that one, definitely. Interesting. I do. I fancy Villa to get something there, actually. I don't know why. Maybe, I don't know, because we're so unconventional in the way that we play, whereas I think you're more likely to get a conventional, straightforward um, clash between the two of them. I think we sometimes forget how out there Leeds are in terms of style and the man-to-man and the, and the aggressive uh, attacking. Yeah, but obviously Villa lose Konza now to red card. Coutinho seemed to be suffering from cramp and so on. I don't know how he'll be for, for two games in a week. Maybe fine. Um, but he, you know, it, it might be might be a challenge for him. It feels a little bit like Newcastle have got their, their tails up. And I think, again, they'll look at this as very winnable and think to themselves, if they come out of the game at the weekend on 21 points, they'll be very, very happy. I'll go for a draw in that one, actually. Yeah, let's go for a draw. Yeah, fair enough. As for Leeds at Goodison then, what are you feeling? 
I went for an away win at Villa and I think it should have been an away win at Villa. So on that basis, because Leeds played well enough, I'm going for an away win at Everton. Another draw. It's the way this season is. You fail. Creeping, creeping. <laughs> never never enough safety, but never in massive danger. Just always, just within touch of it. Mm. What makes you so sad? Oh, Leeds United. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do, I do fancy us for this one. Again, it's the, it's the same story of the season, really, isn't it? If we turn up, Again, if we if we turn up in the same way that we did at Villa Park, I think we've got the tools in our locker to hurt Everton, given how fragile they are at the minute and the players that they're missing. It's funny, just actually, let's return back to the, the fixture at Ellen Road earlier in the season and compare what the two things feel like. Because they felt like they were on a bit of a bounce right at the start of the season. You got you know new manager in and they didn't hate Benitez quite at that point or not completely. You knew um, it was coming though, didn't you? Yeah. That was the thing I didn't understand about that appointment was that you, you knew there would come a kind of awkward period for Everton where all of a sudden people would say, yeah, but Benitez is Liverpool, isn't he? Yeah, and yeah, he had no so credit, no so credit in the went. bank. No, no, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, that was a, it was a good game. And again, and you could, you could say this about a lot of matches this season, there were just critical points in it. That stage where Everton looked like they were going to sew it up and two big chances for Calvert-Lewin. But then Leeds very much worth the point. And if you think back to it, two sides you looked at and thought, be all right this season, won't they? They're about evenly matched, is yeah, what I thought. Yeah, and, and, and it turns and, out evenly and, matched is fifteenth and sixteenth. Well, yeah, no, no, very much. So I, I think I was looking at them thinking, well, Everton aren't going to bother Europe, um, and neither are Leeds. But you know, tenth, eleventh, twelfth, something like that should should be all right. I think if if you're Leeds, you're happier than Everton though, at the moment. Yeah, definitely, and um, we can get up towards twelfth ish if we um, if we win this one. But yeah, they they seem to have gone on this this downward spiral to Everton, don't they? So I just, I don't know. It's, it's funny. You see these patterns in football, like Rafinha had a bit of a stinker last night and we didn't really touch on that in the, in the first part. So maybe worth just uh, spending a minute on now, but he always scores against Everton and always looks really, really effective. And I just can't help feel that he'll be furious based on last night. So he'll want to remedy it. He likes Everton and football has a funny way of throwing these little coincidences and patterns up, doesn't it? Like we always go to Villa and score three. I hear quite a lot of people saying that they don't think Rafinha's been consistent enough or good enough this season, but I'd, I would say the complete opposite. I think he's done a lot to, to carry Leeds and there are going to be games where he doesn't play well and I don't think it's at all unreasonable that in those games you look to Rodrigo to step up as he did defensively last night. You look for Harrison to step up or James or, or other people um, because that is how you build a good team and, and that is basically the, the the way that Bielsa looks at football. You You build a team of 11 people as opposed to having individuals who, who dig you out constantly. But yeah, you're right. He does like a goal against Everton and he likes a good goal against Everton. And you can't ignore the fact that he had, you know, we had time off, didn't we, a couple of weeks between the um, the fixtures. Well, nearly three weeks actually, wasn't it? He's got married in that time. He's travelled away. So, you know, the head's maybe not been completely focused on Leeds, which is it's just a human thing, isn't it? It's not his fault. No, absolutely. I mean, sometimes you just shit and you, like, sometimes you just don't play. you just don't play well. Doesn't necessarily need to be any science in it, and you you see it you see it the world over. But I think he's had I think he's had a cracking season, Rafinha. I really do. Yeah, so I fancy him. He's going he's going to score, get himself back on uh, back on form, and I'll, there's no reason why Leeds won't win. I, I feel like I'm trying to convince myself a little bit this season when I'm trying to be positive. You, you sound like you're trying to convince yourself now, but yeah. I, I'm I'm with you. I think it will be. But the thing is, it's like when, when, when we predict a, a Leeds win and it doesn't happen, people go, people hammer you like on socials or say, what did you say that for? It's your fault. We're not influencing this. I used to say, people used to say to me, this was down to your tweet. And I used to say, oh, it wasn't my tweet that was rising at the back post on Mark's head, <laughs> you know, head in that corner with two minutes to go. You know, it doesn't technically work like that. Although I do have 
such a track record that sometimes you, you do wonder. I'll tell you what's quite impressive. We've got to the end of this without mentioning Spygate once or even Bielsa v Lampard. Oh, you've done it now. Yeah, it's, it's kind of gone though, isn't well, it? Well, I think that is, that is one of the things though that does, I guess, feed into this game is the, the tactical matchup and that Bielsa did have Lampard on toast for three and a half games um, prior to us getting promoted. And as Derby will always tell you, yeah. Lampard won the one that uh, that, that counted. counted. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's... They've got bigger things to worry about. It's moved on now. And I, I, tactically, it will be really interesting. And, and with Lampard's system, if he does go with this 3-4-2-1, again, I'll be really interested to see how it works because it seems new and it doesn't necessarily strike me as the the way you want to go with a side who desperately need points. Again, just to return to the Newcastle-Everton game, that is one thing that struck me watching that game was... Everton were trying to play out from the back, but the number of times they gave it away, sometimes not even under even under that much pressure, that I thought, if we're going to press them high and hard as we tend to do, there's some joy to be had f- for us in this. And I do sometimes wonder exactly what it is Lampard's trying to do. That's one thing I've never quite been able to figure out. And I know we're all biased against him, as we say, we've got to admit that, um, because of all the stuff that happened around Spygate and the, and the playoffs. But even still, just from a pure objective, tactical point of view, I don't always quite get it. I mean, the, the playoff, game, the second half, well, end of the first half into the second, just hit the ball over the top towards Kiko Kassir and Liam Cooper seemed to be the, the way of getting at us yeah. in that game so that's not going to be an option here The thing about playing out from the back is you have to be good at it and you have to have players who are good at it and going right back to the meeting we were talking about Bielsa and Quiroga and Reyes and Flores with um, Otto and others in Argentina the selection of who was staying and who was going when it came to the squad at Leeds was all about who can play this, who do I think, having watched the videos, who do I think can play this style and, and can fit into it? And, you know, Benitez isn't really renowned for that, it has to be said. So if you're taking on a squad that are not really suited to playing out from the back or haven't really been coached in that way or haven't done it for a while, it's a very big ask and it's a very big ask with two thirds of the season already gone. I, I don't know if you remember... Philip Cook, who's Derby, coming to Leeds in Bielsa's second season as head coach. Lampard had gone, obviously, and Cook came. And they were trying and trying to play out from the back. They'd obviously been told by Cook, you know, this is what you do. And as if memory serves me right, that did actually end in a one-all draw, but it was a bit of a travesty and, and Leeds had you know so much of that game, they, they should have won it. But I remember sitting with our Derby writer at the time and saying to him, as, as that game went on, they just don't look comfortable doing this. They've obviously been told to do it and Cocker has decided, you know, we are a team who are going to play out from the back. But there's a difference between saying that's what we're going to do and actually being able to do it. And, you know, that is one of the things that has always worked for Bielsa is that he, he likes that style of play. He wants that style of play, but he's got the players who can do it and they've been coached to do it. Well, now we've talked ourselves into a Leeds win. We shall see how this one plays out. Uh, I would say Michael's just thrown daggers at us there, Phil, um, <laughs> we should say, because he do, he will never agree. <laughs> at what point will you be comfortable this season? Is it if and when we get safe? Um, I think once we, once we, it feels like we've got an eight or nine point gap and, and one or two more teams in between. If we can kind of drag Brentford and, I don't know, maybe Palace or someone down there with us, I think it, if it feels like it's not, it's not us or one other team, for example, if it's if it's like, you know, more likely four or five others, that's fine. I think if we get to the end of the season and Leeds are safe and Michael's not predicting Leeds winning at Brentford on the last weekend, we might have to part company by mutual consent. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there we go. That does wrap up the Phil Hay Show for this week. We'll be back next week. Uh, We'll record on Thursday. In the wake of the Everton game, we'll preview the Man United game. Should we get Mr Mitten on for that one? I don't think so, do you? (laughs) (laughs) This is a Leeds show. We'll join you for that next week. We'll see you in a bit. The Phil Hay Show.
Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.